Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. Today I have a special guest, Duyugu Balin. She is an author and psychotherapist specializing in intergenerational trauma. That's a mouthful but she has just co-written a book called, it's a workbook called Rewrite, a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovering in our new normal. So do you go, I will let you take over and introduce yourself a little more and talk about who you are and what you do. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. As you said, I'm a psychotherapist and I specialize in intergenerational trauma. And I put together, we put together this uh, workbook during the pandemic because the need for um, mental health services was just so much that we just wanted to extend the uh, therapeutic process beyond the 50 minutes. So that's how this came about. And thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad you could be here. I told um, Do You Go right before we started recording, like you had me at the word write, because I'm also a writer and I believe in journaling for working through things. I'm, I'm really big on journaling when I'm struggling with something. So I'm really excited about actually digging into this workbook. But I'm going to ask her a few questions. And then if, if you want to take off on a topic, you just let me know. This one, this question really spoke to me because we are talking to parents of children who have experienced trauma and sometimes the parents have also experienced trauma or they have secondary trauma from their kiddos. So how can hearing someone's story get to the root of their trauma better than the symptoms? Yes. So one thing that I feel like is important to uh, to note is also in the title of the book, Rewrite. So it is that we can actually rewrite our own narratives. So our trauma mm-hmm. is not our identity and it's not a life sentence. We can change it. We can change the way we relate to ourselves and relate to others and also to the world. So that's why that title just really spoke to us. And it's writing just allows expression and what's actually more important is the emotional experience of the event so it's not necessarily the story that matters it's more allowing the emotional experience to surface 
oftentimes when we're in stressful situations and traumatic experiences, we can't really feel our feelings because we're in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, all we are really concerned about is just getting past that event. So once we are past it, that's when we can actually feel the emotions that are attached to it, which is what the writing practice allows us to do. Well, and I think that you get into digging into those feelings when, like you said, after the event, you're like, wait a minute, what am I feeling? Or what was I feeling? Because we just want to survive the event. And so I, I just, for me personally, I feel like writing it down, I'm telling myself, this is how you felt. This is what happened. And now you can process it and move on to, like you said, rewriting your story. Yes. And there's no right way of doing it, actually. So sometimes if we're going to get to the emotional experience by writing every single detail, then that's the way to do it. Or sometimes it can even be a to-do list. Whatever needs to be written down is all fine so there's no uh, there's no one particular way but um, just not just it's important to pay attention not to get caught up in the details of the incident so that the feelings can also be processed during this exercise right and in your workbook you give several I can't remember how many there's so many different writing like you can write different ways and examine things in different ways through different lenses, correct? Yes, definitely. It could be anything. It could be poetry. It could be journaling. It could be storytelling. Whatever way expression feels easiest and flows, that's the right way to do it. Right. That's really helpful because I think we can get stuck in that this is the one way to do it. And if I can't do it that way, then I'm going to fail. (laughs) When this is not something you can fail at, it's something that you can try different ways until you find something that works for you, correct? Definitely, yes. So how can people get the most of their trauma treatment? And I say parents for themselves and for their kids, so they are utilizing their time wisely. So uh, I think awareness is the most important piece uh, to trauma treatment, and and uh, the one this book can be used uh, adjunct to therapy, but it also could be used for somebody's individual use. And one thing that I find important to note is that when we are doing these writing exercises or when we're examining our trauma and the events that have happened to us, it's important to also think about our nervous system Mm. because trauma treatment actually changed a lot over the years. Before, it was more about telling was healing. So it was considered when we tell our stories, that's how we heal. But now we know that that can actually lead to re-traumatization. So... So that's why it's really important to understand what happens to our bodies and to regulate our bodies first, which is why in this book there's a lot of grounding techniques, a lot of coping strategies, and a lot of breathing exercises, because when we're in a relaxed state, that's when we can actually get deeper into the emotions. And our breath and our body posture actually tells us a lot about uh, our our kind of... uh, where we are in our 
um, psyche. So for instance, when we are really in survival mode, then we're not really going to breathe deeply, which is why it's important to regulate our breath first, paying attention to our body. For instance, if we're clenching our jaw or if we are tensing our back, allowing ourselves to relax first will make it so that we can get the most out of our practices, whether it's writing or any kind of other creative expression, it would be mo most helpful to reach it through the nervous system level first. Right. And I'm just, I was trying to remember the name of this book that I read this in, but it was about foster care. And it was um, just several teens sharing their stories. And one teen said that, that the group therapy did not help her because all they did was go to therapy, retell their story go to therapy, retell their story. And so she said she ended up feeling as if she were the one who did something wrong instead of being the victim in an abusive situation at home. So you're right. I think that we've grown and we've learned that the simply telling your story is not the end of the healing or the or even the beginning of the healing it's it, there there are more components like you said we can't be hyper vigilant we can't be in survival mode we can't be clenched and holding our breath or feeling as if we have to perform in a group like i've got to tell my story so i better tell it well you know all of those things play into it i think Exactly. And also, sometimes there's not even a story. Sometimes the traumatic event is so repressed that it, you can't even reach it. Or it could come from a, it could happen in a time where verbalization wasn't really formed yet. So, for instance, if there's somebody who witnessed something terrible, a death of a parent, for instance, uh, at the age of one, there's not really going to be a verbal account of that incident. But there will be emotional triggers. There will be feelings associated with it. And it's important to be able to discover what these triggers are. So once we know the triggers, then we can actually uh, incorporate coping mechanisms and soothing techniques to help our bodies remember that we are safe right now today so that we don't react to the events in our lives from that past emotional state. Right. And I think that it's difficult sometimes for foster and adoptive parents because we may know a little bit about our kiddo's story, but we don't know it all. And so when they have these triggers, we're just stand, standing there scratching our heads like, where did that come from? And yes. I think it's more important to pay attention to what is going to make them feel safe when they're triggered than to getting to the actual, I need their history, I need their story, I need to know what's going on, because sometimes we just can't find that out. Exactly. So it actually, it's really, uh, it, it really is um, in, in foster care situations or a parent to adopt children without knowing their past. This actually is really important because it doesn't really matter. The story is, is, in itself is not what is um, important. It's more important to be curious about the patterns of how this child gets triggered and that is very informative on its own. So it's more about finding out what the triggers are and what kind of patterns this child gets into. So that is how these patterns can be rewritten in more secure ways of uh, attachment and more secure ways of 
being kind of in relation to self in relation to the world can be achieved by that right that's that's really powerful so um what was your goal in creating this workbook and what prompted you to write this workbook which you've kind of already answered but just to clarify for our listeners again Yes. So it started during the pandemic uh, because during the pandemic, the need for mental health was, as I said, just was amplified so much. And I saw this in my own practice as well. Uh, Many of my clients were asking for extra sessions. So I found myself giving them a lot of writing exercises. And then um, also I was noticing that a lot of my clients were getting much more curious about their symptoms. And part of the reason was because they were just spending so much more time with themselves because there was not much accessibility to socialization or extracurricular activities and when uh, you start researching your symptoms on social media for instance or online it could be really misleading and Mm -hmm. it could actually really worsen the condition so I wanted to put together this book that weaves theoretical information that's easily digestible but also includes some coping techniques or some writing prompts so there's um, so there's a kind of an outlet for someone to make meaning of their trauma and also heal it at the same time. Right. And I think that's so true for parents I was working with during the pandemic, too. They were seeing a lot of regression in their children. And then some of their kiddos who had never like really experienced trauma all of a sudden were traumatized by doing online school or having to go to school in a mask or, you know, so many various things that it just was building up on our kiddos and on us in general. And I've said this before on the podcast, but places like TikTok are not the place you need to go for your mental health (laughs) advice or any of that. You know, people will tell me, well, I saw this on TikTok or I saw this on Instagram. Like, okay, You might want to find somebody, dig a little deeper, get some therapy. Yes, maybe that can start the conversation, but that's all that's for. Yes, definitely. And it can actually be very dangerous because it can be very misleading and it can also uh, result in a lot of confusion. So I always tell people that TikTok and other social media is for entertainment purposes and for any other uh, kind of curiosity around mental health, it's really important to um, go with academic uh, or medical resources that are evidence-based mm-hmm. and talk to professionals about this. Uh, there's a lot of resources out there and that are valid, so it's important to seek out those. I agree. I agree. So let's talk about the Balin three, two, one method and those models that you discuss and rewrite. What is different about this method? Yes. So this method uh, came up because uh, when I was, as I said, during the pandemic, when I was giving, using more writing exercises outside of session, I was noticing that um, because so many people were just under so much stress and there was so much fear and anxiety, they couldn't really relax into the writing exercises. So I wanted to include also some coping strategies. So the three, two, one, the three is uh, the body, the breath, and relaxation techniques, and also kind of thinking about the setting, which 
uh, is just contributes to to the soothing environment and this could be anything this could be um, music or it could be a lighting a candle or it could be choosing a part of your uh, house or or uh, going outside to uh, to for your writing practice and then um and then the two are the writing prompts, but these are just kind of, uh, just things to start the thought process. So I'm not really concerned about people staying on topic. Actually, when people drift off, I always tell them that that's great because that means that they found what needs to be told. So the writing prompts are just to get started and to kind of let it free associate is I think the best way of doing it. And then because I wanted the practice to have a feeling of closure the last piece of it is the coming up with an affirm affirmation or a gratitude just so that we can seal that practice so it's not like open because you know when we go deep into our psyche we might uh, hit places that are really vulnerable so you just want to make sure that you close the practice and that's why I wanted to come up with that last piece of it. And I love that. And I know um, Dr. Caroline Leaf, you kind of mentioned this practice in your book, like whenever you are, like you're done with this and you're going to set it aside for now, Dr. Caroline Leaf says when you're going through that, then you just imagine whatever you're dealing with and putting it in a box and putting it in, in a building and then saying, I will come back and address you again tomorrow when I'm journaling or her thing is neurocycling. Whenever I'm doing that, I'll come back. And that practice, personally for me, has helped a lot. Just like, okay, I did my session. I'm grateful for this. You know, I did the breathing. And then, okay, I'm done for today. Because it will keep coming back up in your mind. Or your kids will trigger you. Or you'll trigger them, and they'll trigger you. And you're in a trigger war. And then it all comes back up like, nope, I'm putting you away for now. Yes, and it's it will still be there, and the same is for to do lists. Uh, you know, like it's 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 important to give ourselves that permission to uh, move through things and then to end it, so that we can be present in our lives and whatever it is that we're dealing with and whatever it is that we have to accomplish will still be waiting for us. Right, and I did a whole podcast on you know how to heal from trauma and parent at the same time. And I'll link that in the show notes because I can't remember the exact title. But I think that sometimes parents just take their past trauma like a book and put it on a bookshelf and say, I can't do this right now, ever. I'm too busy parenting. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think that if you don't make sense of and peace with your past, then you're constantly going to be in a trigger war with your kids. So this idea of setting aside time and saying, right now, I'm going to work on this. And then I'm going to set it aside so that I can go parent. Would you agree? Definitely. And also, as parents, it's our responsibility to heal ourselves. So our past traumas and our difficult childhoods are not really an excuse. And we are responsible of healing ourselves so that we don't pass on that trauma. And sometimes, for instance, even if the uh, family structure seems very different, when we have unhealed, unprocessed trauma from our childhoods, it can even look as overcompensating for the things that we were missing, mm -hmm. which could also be very traumatic. So it's really important to 
take the time and to heal our inner child and our woundings so that our child, we can set our children free. Right, exactly, which is a good segue to the next question, which is how can someone use rewrite for themselves and how can they know that they need to take action? Um, so rewrite has uh, many different sections there it's, it doesn't have to be chronological uh, whatever the person is dealing with there are uh, writing prompts so and there's a lot of writing prompts actually that have to do with uh, familial trauma uh, because that's one thing that I uh, specialize in uh, and also there's a lot of case studies to some mm. examples which could also kind of bring up some things and um, get in touch with your own family history and background and I think one of the ways is that if during this process or before if the symptoms are starting to interfere with the day-to-day life or there are any kind of thoughts of self-harm or harming others then most definitely it's really important to seek professional help and I know that there's still some stigma around it and especially for men there's a lot of stigma around seeking help and and therapy but we are all human beings and we do need support sometimes so it's really important to be able to reach out to loved ones reach out to community resources and professional help if it comes to it and if we feel like it's we can't really handle our own emotions or or we're getting too triggered and sometimes when we're using workbooks like this it can open up uh, things which is it can be uncomfortable, but it is also a necessary thing. It's important to be able to feel our feelings so that they don't have the same power over us. Because once we uh, unlock these dark parts of ourselves, they don't really dictate our lives anymore. Then we can take our control back. So that's why it's really important to put in the work. And if we do need professional help while we're doing it, then we just have to reach out. Well, and I think the case studies are very helpful because I read through many of the case studies and I think that we in our culture are in danger of normalizing our trauma. So maybe something happened to you in your childhood or your teen years and to you because that's the way it was in your home or your school or your community, you normalized it. Well, that's just the way it is. And reading these case studies will open your eyes to the truth that hey like the other sister that case study like oh my goodness maybe that happened to me there was a favored twin and I was not the favored twin but I thought that was normal and so I just said okay that's just the way it is so I think it's important to read these case studies and then if it does trigger you or open your eyes to, hey, that was a trauma and I didn't even realize it, then then you move on. Then maybe you need to get counseling or find a therapist, but start writing and start working through it. Because yes. And it's not even only just normalizing, it's also there's a silence around trauma. Mm-hmm. The understanding is that nobody wants to hear it. So for me, it's really important to break this stigma because if we don't talk about child abuse or domestic violence or you know addiction, then we're actually making it so that these cycles continue and these toxic relationships 
trips just go from generation to generation. So these are uncomfortable conversations, of course, but we have to have them. And also, one of the reasons why I wanted to include uh, case studies was because a lot of times when we're in traumatic situations, the understanding is I'm the only one suffering through mm-hmm. this because because there's not that much representation in social media or in uh, you know novels or not enough at least more mm-hmm. and more but still not enough representation of trauma in so that's why the understanding is I'm alone but by kind of seeing other people's experience that feeling of loneliness gets reduced which is really important in healing right and I'm glad you said that because I think that parents raising kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes are isolated already because they are at home or at therapies and they're just stuck in this little bubble of trying to help the child and then they begin to feel isolated from the community and then they begin to feel as if they are the only one and unfortunately at least in my experience and a lot of the parents that I've talked to and counseled in air quotes here, when they do go out in the community, they're judged because their kiddos can't behave, again in air quotes, or regulate because of their trauma histories and their capital letter syndrome. So it's like they feel very stuck. They feel very alone. So what would you say to those parents? It's also, I think, about the concept of mothering, which is another thing that is passed from generation to generation, what the role of a mother is, right? Like, uh, so I think the, the um, expectation in our modern society about mothering is impossible to meet. The standards mm-hmm. are just so high. Mm-hmm. And even we often say it takes a village to raise a child, but most of the time it's the mother raising the child alone. And I'm not even just talking about single parent households, also in partnerships, mothers are the ones who are responsible of taking care of the education, extracurricular activities, and all sorts of bathing or feeding, all that. And And it's just, and that's not just the only expectation. They're also expected to be attractive and sociable and successful in their career. And God forbid, if their children ever have a tantrum, they have to be shiny and well-behaved all the time. So it's just so impossible. And I think this is another conversation that has to happen so that mothers don't internalize these belief systems and then pass it on because they're just not realistic. I agree 100%. And all of those things that you just said, I have felt like, you know what? And I remember it was just a couple years after the adoption when I was really struggling because there wasn't as many helps and therapies when we adopted. And I'm, I'm grateful that my daughters have access to, like my eldest daughter, every, she has six children and they're all on the spectrum. And they all have different therapies they go to. And I'm so grateful that she has those things. Anyway, that was a side note. But I felt so much pressure. And I remember being so exhausted trying to look like a normal human being, dress, put my makeup on, all those sorts of things, and go out in public. And I remember telling a friend of mine, like, you know what, I am just overwhelmed and exhausted. And she turned to me and said, well, you're the one who adopted the kiddos. Mm -hmm. And I just shut down. 
And I I had what I call the silent years, where after that one comment, I did not tell anybody what was going on at home or how difficult it was for me. I just did it. And I think that's a very common, like you said, generational thing. Like, don't tell anybody how difficult it is. Just do it and and look your best when you're out in public and shush your children and all of these sorts of things. It's generational and it's got to stop. Honestly, it's got to stop. Yes. And mothers are just shamed of to- uh, about talking about the challenges of mothering, which is very, very unfortunate and actually very toxic. When, when I first became a mother, uh, everybody told me about how I was going to experience a love that I've never experienced before and the kind of gifts of mothering. And all of that was true. My son is the light of my life. But nobody talked to me about the toll it would take on my body, on my career, on my relationships, and the magnitude of what was going to be asked of me, and the loneliness that comes with mothering. Nobody talked to me about these things, and that's why I think it's so important that we talk about with uh, in our communities with other women and uh, new mothers about these things that it's okay that it doesn't make us less of a mother when we are experiencing challenges it's important to mothering has a lot of sacrifices and some losses mm-hmm. and I think it's really important to come to terms with these sacrifices and grieve the losses and for this to be socially acceptable I agree 100% so do you go do you have like one last piece of advice as we're finishing up if you could tell our listeners one thing what would it be I think kind of in in this in this tone that we are uh, talking right now it's I, I just think that it's important to um, have find your tribe find people that you can actually be vulnerable with people that you can talk about challenges and where that is okay and expect accept it thank you thank you do you go for being on the podcast today i appreciate it thank you so much it was a pleasure and i will see you next week listeners Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at trauma-informedparenting.com.